0: You know, and it's, it's one of the things, what is, and I think that's one of the things the story's about, is what is secular Yiddish culture? And is such a thing even possible? And how secular can it get?
1: Welcome to Yiddish Book Club, a podcast in which we discuss one piece of Yiddish literature and its English translations. This episode, we are talking about Chaim Grada and his short story, or novella, or possibly memoir, My Quarrel with Hirsch Resaner written and published in the early 1950s. To me, my quarrel with Hirsch rasener is an argument between two Jews over the meaning of Judaism before and after the Holocaust. But what do I know? I read the English translation, which among other errors happens to have omitted an entire chapter of the story as well as a pivotal third character. More on that to come. My name is Eric Klein and I don't speak Yiddish, but my grandparents did. And i'm joined on this project by three friends who are experts in the yiddish language they speak it they read it they translate it faith jones is a librarian in vancouver
2: british columbia i feel like this story of two old cranky old jewish men who get together to yell at each other is a movie i've seen more than once and one of the things i really love about this argument is that through it all Grada remains. He is. He is kind of like, or I shouldn't say, Grada. Chaim Vilner remains this kind of um, very typical kind of Jewish atheist, which is the kind that knows that even though you don't believe in God, that doesn't have to stop you from being furious at him.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Shane Baker is an actor and teacher in New York City.
3: I think it's one of Grada's major themes. You know, just as here. Hersh Rosener and Chaim Vilner do not convince one the other of very much. They remain at, mm-hmm. at this uh, uh, crossroads or, or uh, a standoff, Navaradkar standoff, uh, rather than a Mexican standoff.
1: <laughs> and Michael Wex is a writer who grew up speaking Yiddish in the 1960s in a community of Yiddish-speaking Jews in Canada.
0: I remember people talking, you know, ex- Debates of exactly this type Uh, when I was a kid, you know, held by people, you know, amongst people who were, you know, not particularly literary or whatever, but I mean, exactly the same kinds of fights. This is what real people really, you know, this looks like it's sort of set up to be some kind of, you know, allegory is the wrong word here, but, you know, you've got these two representational figures standing
3: for... Uh, it's like a platonic dialogue modes of
0: life, but I mean, I remember these conversations amongst people. You know, not all of whom had stopped being orthodox. I mean, and not all of whom. You know, none of whom, at least in any circles that I was aware of, uh, went on to become famous writers or anything else. I mean, some of them became famous used car salesmen. But
2: <laughs> you know, these
0: these were the kinds of things people talked about for years and years. Yeah uh you know remember there was also the idea of being a holocaust survivor as the this was an experience or an ordeal that had somehow ennobled you that didn't come along until the mid 70s
1: haim grada was one of the four most yiddish writers of the post-war period born in 1910 in vilna Vilnius, Lithuania, and educated in a rigorous, controlling form of religious school, Grada broke away to write Yiddish poetry. He survived World War II in the Soviet Union, but returned to find his family murdered, whereupon he immigrated to the United States. So at this point in the podcast, I'm going to discuss for just a moment the notion of spoilers. Should you read Chaim Grada's story before you listen to the episode? My answer is easy this time. It doesn't matter at all. This particular story, my quarrel with Hirschvasser, is pretty much without a plot. So there are no twists, <laughs> there are no turns. There's nothing to spoil. In fact, as far as I'm concerned, our conversation on this episode uh, about Hirschvasser, my quarrel with Hirschvasser, it's uh, something I would recommend to the English-only readers of the world before they tackle the work, as opposed to after. Uh, And very quickly, before we launch into the episode, uh, Yiddish Book Club is on the web at YiddishBookClub.com. It's a podcast you can subscribe to. I would invite you to subscribe on your podcast app of choice. Search for YiddishBookClub.com in the iTunes store, on your iPhone's podcast app, in the Stitcher app or elsewhere. Or you can simply listen in your browser to the episodes that are up on the website, YiddishBookClub.com. We'd love to hear from you. Either about what you're reading or about what you want to read or about your favorite Yiddish authors or your reaction to our conversations, you can email us, Yiddish Club at gmail.com. Or you can find us on Facebook, Facebook.com slash Yiddish Book Club or Twitter.com slash Yiddish Book Club, and on and on. The point is that we're open to hearing from you. We welcome your voice to add to the conversations that we're having here on the show. So without further ado, our conversation about my quarrel with Hirsch Resainer, which I'm proud to say I have learned to pronounce. So, yeah, first things first. Uh, I need help pronouncing things. So, the title uh-huh. of the story is
2: M- "My Quarrel mein- with Hirsch Resainer," or Hirsch Resainer. Krieg- yeah. Everyone's in agreement. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Or "Mein Krieg mit Hirsch Resainer."
1: and the author
2: yeah. in jewish
1: <laughs> i am grada. grada
2: and um yeah yeah i once had a librarian call me up i was looking for i was looking for an article about grada and this librarian you know of course it's vancouver so this librarian called me up and said i have the chain grade book you were looking for
3: oh, <laughs> oh chain grade Shame
0: grade shame grade well well shame grade's shame grade's cousin Labish uh, better known as Sir Lou grade was a major <laughs> British film producer.
2: are you serious uh,
0: under the name grade
3: yeah
2: huh
3: and it was pronounced grade
2: well
3: At if you're British by English yeah. Speakers, yeah. Grade, huh? Lord um, grade yeah uh, I want to do a play where everybody speaks transliteration as if it were English, so they'll wish each other gut shaves. <laughs> I oh, know.
0: shapes. Oh, yeah, shapes! Well, it's one of my favorite gut holidays. Shaves. <laughs> shapes. Yeah.
1: And what what should we know about uh, Mr. Chain Grade, Mr. Chaim Grada? Who's this guy?
2: Uh, Who's this guy? Okay, so Grada. Had a life a lot like Chaim Vilner in the story. Yeah. Um, he came from Vilna. He came from an extremely pious Orthodox family. His years were 1910 to 1982, and he became a poet. And do you guys have a stronger sense? I feel as if he was really primarily a poet until after the well, war.
0: C- certainly, if <laughs> you asked him. You know. That's what he would yeah. have told you. Yeah, and
2: uh, then he sort of moved into
0: prose. Yeah, I think he started writing prose as much for the money as anything else. Mm. I'm not 100% on this, but I knew an older man in Toronto who was actually, like, not just an acquaintance of Graves, but a friend, uh, who once said to me that he basically started writing fiction because there was nowhere to sell poetry, and the fiction he could sell to the Yiddish papers.
2: It's true, you did get paid, not, not unwell, I gather, for, especially for a novel, um, because a novel in serialization could take up a lot of pages.
0: And yeah, so, and, and most of his better known stuff, or much of it, ran in the foreword uh, as a serialized thing. I mean, his big novel, which in Yiddish is called uh, Atlas*, which is the name of the main character in English, it was translated in two volumes yet. Uh, as the yeshiva, and concerns to a degree a lot of the stuff that's talked about in the Hersh Rosener story, I mean, that thing ran forever.
2: Well, it had to I have mean,
0: had. The yeah, I mean, I, th- enormous. I I think I went from bar mitzvah into my second marriage with that thing still running. Because, <laughs> uh, you know, the novel is six, six pages. yeah. Uh, and it, it ran for years, yeah. Uh, as did many of the other stories that were either eventually published as self-standing novels or collections of short stories. Right. Uh, I know last time we spoke, Shane had just come from teaching uh, one of them, which I guess you guys are still reading. Yes,
3: yes. I uh, watched from my mama's shabosom. No, uh, der Minion, the oh, Stummer Minion, yeah. The Silent Minion, The Silent Quorum. Yeah, but I guess the, the main thing about Grada's
0: background, other than that he had been a poet, he was part of a group of roughly uh, contemporary, you know, people who were roughly contemporary with him that called themselves Jung Vilna or Young Vilna prior to the war. But unlike just about all of them, Uh, because his mother uh, was so religious, he was sent to uh, these very extreme Lithuanian yeshivas uh, associated with what's called the Muser movement. Uh, Muser means like ethics, I guess, in English. Mm. And this was a kind of belated Jewish Franciscanism that was coming up, uh, came up originally in the 19th century as a sort of Lithuanian counterpart or counterpoint, if you prefer, uh, to the, the, the Hasidic revolution that had swept through much of the rest of Jewish Eastern Europe by that time and placed a very heavy emphasis on introspection of, not, you know, introspection basically devoted uh-huh. to obliterating your ego. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Uh, and one of his main teachers which doesn't come out in this story but is certainly made much of in uh, in the yeshiva was a uh, very well known very influential Lithuanian rabbi called Karolitz uh, who's better known as the Chazonish in, in Hebrew after the name of uh, one of his books of responsa who was the leader of, I guess, extreme ultra-orthodox non-Hasidic Judaism in Lithuania. He eventually went to Israel where he died in the early 50s, Uh, but his influence on what has happened to the religious community in Israel is pretty much incalculable, is very, very influential. And Grada was taken on to be a student of his. Normally, a guy from a family like Grada's wouldn't have been allowed into these places, but his mother cried and wept and begged so hard that they decided to give him a chance. And apparently, he never 100% fitted in. You could only get this kind of information uh, from biographies of the Chazanish, of Karelitz and stuff with They will talk about somebody who became a well-known huh. heretical huh. author. They, they won't mention his name <laughs> ever, uh, was there and wrote about it. But, of course, everything he said is crap, which is funny because the Chazanish comes across in Grada's work uh, very well. Um, right. Right. So you what, know, it's not like an attack on some religious hypocrite. It's, you know, this is a pious, saintly person who really believes – what he's doing and everything. You know, it's not like, oh look, he's a a radio evangelist or, or some such thing.
3: <laughs>
0: and much of Grava's early poetry was concerned with this stuff too. Oh. Uh you know, one of his best known long poems, a Musonikus or well, Musarnikus, depending on where you're from, is about these you know, the people in these yeshivas and stuff.
1: Right. And this this short story that we're discussing, my quarrel with uh, Hirsch Rassiner, uh, Rassiner, thank you, guys. I, I'm depending on you uh, all throughout this project to, to correct.
3: Which is from from the town Rassine. Where's that? Like uh, yeah.
1: in, it's in, in Poland. In, in, yeah. So this Rusainer. in in this, from they from got Poland their names away, after yeah. the towns,
3: as he says. He's Chaim. Yeah. He's Chaim, yeah, he's Chaim Wilder, yeah.
1: So in this short story, I mean, we have what is. Um, what, what seems to me to be a very uh, lightly fictionalized autobiographical short story. Well, this story. is an
2: interesting question, Eric. That's an interesting question. What is the genre of this work? Because <laughs> I want to just note, as the librarian present, that when, when this appeared in Yiddish Kempfer, in, in, in Yiddish in, its, in a periodical in 1951, it was called a novella, okay. which would mean that it was fiction and when it appeared in his collection collected several years later when it appeared in a collection of Grotto works it was called a memoir
1: yeah cuz it's him i mean it's a writer who's a poet and uh, and and uh lived that life that that Michael just described of um having gone to a strict uh uh my mind wants to say a little yeshiva um, yeah yeshiva but also like a little um Extreme, right? That's that's one word to oh, one adjective. I think fanatical would uh, be uh, uh, Hold on. The doorbell's fucking ringing.
3: Just a second. Uh, Wex is chiming in again.
1: Are you back with us, Michael? Yes,
3: I am. I, and so there was nobody at the door.
1: Great. Yes. So, uh, Of course there was. So who was ringing it?
0: legal. So, <laughs> ghost,
1: so uh, the main character in this short story, which may or may not be just an autobiographical memoir uh, went to a strict fundamental uh, Hebrew school with a bunch of other guys and And then Yeshiva Yeshiva yeah
0: this this is like advanced level education yeah
1: so it's like a university okay makes sense and then he and then he leaves to go uh, live the life of a of a urban intellectual right to write
0: yeah
1: correct oh and then he meets up with one of his former classmates
3: uh, and the story is composed of these uh, yeah. uh, various meetings num- over time yeah he, has, yeah, he has a number of encounters with him both before
0: and after World War Two, right. so and, the t- and they argue about Judaism before.
2: correct so yeah. now you Eric you may have gotten a slightly um, different impression of this story mm-hmm. reading it in English uh, because the, the English version is different, um, and I believe this is probably something that Howe and Greenberg, when they were editing A Treasury of Yiddish Stories, um, it was probably their vision. Um, but what, what yeah. they did is they cut out a very, very long section from the middle, which introduces a third character. Oh,
1: how, uh, and how, has, how and extreme. I,
2: and has, yes, and has, I think, some really, really important stuff in it. Um, I think the story in English is still a great story, but I think um, it 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 excises some things that are really, really oh. uncomfortable. Oh, I um, want to dig right into that right away. perhaps. Yeah. Uh. Right. And so I first of all, I want to say that I feel like when they cut this when they cut the story to make it. I think partly to make it a length that's more normal for an English language short story mm-hmm. and so that it would fit in with the other stories in the in the collection that they were editing and it would be sort of of a similar kind of length. Um, I think they were sort of refashioning it as an English story. And I, think, I don't think it's any kind of accident huh. that it's the third character who got cut out because I feel like this story of two old cranky old Jewish men who get together to yell at each other is a movie I've seen more than once, right? You
0: know well, what you I mean. Well, you could have seen the literal movie. Uh, <laughs> uh, there, there was a movie made of this story called The Quarrel. Yes, which
2: uh, has its I own. I think
0: it, I think in the mid '80s. Huh.
2: No, it's from the '90s. It's from the 90s. It the '90s. It's from the yeah. It's from the first part of the '90s, and it is such a '90s kind of movie. Yeah. <laughs> uh,
1: well, did it? Did yeah, they do it, a period piece on it, or did they just jump no, ahead?
0: Yeah. I was... Except they moved it to Montreal after the war. Okay, but, yeah. because it's, it wouldn't be uh, meaningless without uh,
1: without the Holocaust, there's no story.
2: No, no. It's def- It definitely was. It was a post Holocaust story. At any rate, I think that the that the editing of this story to make it more Englishy is part of what happened. Uh, you know, part of what the English language reader is getting well, is a is a story where you've got you know two old men yelling at each other. Well, I'm very
1: excited um, that we're talking about it on the podcast because that's exactly what what we're here for. So so people course. who only I mean, read English can sort of get caught up yeah. on what's missing.
0: I mean. If we're taking this as autobiographical in any sense, uh, though they're not old men, you know, Grotto no, was born true. in 1910. These right. are people at the end of the story in their late thirties. Right. These are actually right. these are young, vital men.
1: They might feel <laughs> they might feel old having uh, like been you, through. Eric. Yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah, and I mean uh, a lot. There is a lot of stuff in there that I think we can take as autobiographical without thinking of this story as
0: a memoir. Um, no, I don't I don't think it's a memoir at all. I mean I, I don't I, either. I, I think you know if anything it's you know a dialogue with oneself. Sure. I
2: think there might even be some clues to that in the text. That this is really I think see here's what I imagine. Here's what I imagine happened to Chaim Grada. He was in Paris after the war and all these survivors were there, coming through there. A number a number stayed there. They still have a very large community there. But A number of people moved through there and moved on to other places. And as all this is happening, you would run into people you met, you knew, or you would meet people and you would you would be talking about these existential questions. How can we believe? How can we continue in the face of genocide? And so people would be asking these kinds of questions of themselves. And he somehow, you know, formed that into this. Artistic representation of those conversations. That's this is my take on it.
1: Yeah, which which is essentially an argument about what it is to be Jewish. Is that what they're fighting over? That's how I read it.
0: Really? I mean, yeah. Help me out. Of, help what me is out. what is the you know?
3: It's partly that. It's you, you it's, know it's, what what is it? life? I, I mean, as much as uh, uh, as Jewish the, these approaches to life mm-hmm. the. the because because uh, Grade, he's taken he's taken the path of the artist, and and it's precluded for him the religious life. So, I mean, I guess it's about how to be Jewish because Grade r- remains Jewish, but it's it's too it's a secular and a uh, religious uh, worldview.
0: It's basically the same argument that you get uh, slightly before Grade's time in Russian, which he was well acquainted with uh in Tolstoy's what is art where you know by that time Tolstoy had gone completely around the deep end and uh, you know it was we don't need art we've got Jesus uh and kind of renouncing all those long books that he had written uh, uh it's a similar kind of thing
2: and one of the things I really love about this argument is that through it all Grada remains, he is He is kind of like, or I shouldn't say Grada, Chaim Vilner remains this kind of um, very typical kind of Jewish atheist, which is the kind that knows that even though you don't believe in God, that doesn't have to stop you from being furious at him. Hmm.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yes, yeah, so I'd love to, before we talk about this third character that's not in the English translation, uh, it, so we... I just wanna. I will state <laughs> my my opinion about what um, the two characters stand for, and then I want you guys to to push back. So, so yeah, Chaim. The Chaim character is a uh, a secular, a writer, a city person who doesn't who has like yeah who has a religious um, whose religious upbringing is not something he's rejected, but he's not just gonna uh, continue with the uh, with the practice until the day he dies he's left he's left the fanaticism behind and then he's speaking with the fanatic uh, and, may, and fanatic's kind of a loaded word um, that's that's the other thing that I'm trying to articulate that's actually difficult for me the the Hirsch Ra- R- Raciner. R- Raciner. Raciner, uh other than being a very religious person rhymes with complainer oh how yeah, nice now I'll never forget <laughs> so Hirsch Hirsch complainer um, no, he 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 sees the world so so the way that he sees the world changes before from the pre-war meetings between the two characters and the post-war meetings, but it changes in the way that he only deepens his uh, commitment to 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 what we're calling fanaticism. Maybe there's a better word. Deep religiosity. Yeah, I, I wouldn't
0: call it fanaticism. I mean, there's very little. I mean, uh, the character's attitude is one thing. But he doesn't actually say much in terms of you know real content, as distinct from how he says it or whatever. That any Orthodox you would disagree with,
1: right? So f- fanaticism is wrong because he's also not being. Uh, he's a
0: deeply religious guy. Yes,
1: yeah, super religious, and and part of that's um, what rejecting a certain uh, ego. I think one of you said a, a few moments ago.
0: Yeah, but also, you know, the religion and, you know, the religious duties and everything for him and for people like that, they actually fill up the space that other people uh, turn to things like art for. You know, it's like, I don't need all of that stuff. I've got the Torah. There's a well-known klezmer musician, who I won't name here, but who got religion many years ago and stopped playing for quite a while. He he started again. But when he first stopped playing, he went, well, you know, all I got from playing music was the same feeling I got from studying the Torah. But when I'm studying the Torah, that's the real Torah. I'm getting it firsthand, so why do I need to play music anymore? Uh, That's the kind of attitude that underlies uh, Harris-Rosaner's approach. That this contains, you know, learning Torah, learning the, the, the Gemara and all of that stuff, it contains all those things.
3: And you know, it's more authentic. Yeah,
0: all the stuff that other people are getting mediated, as it were, through paintings or music or, or literature, they're getting, as it were, directly from the mouth of God via Moses and the sages. So, you know, they're getting closer to the actual
3: source of this, so why do they need the other stuff? And also the argument, look where the other stuff has led, you know, how did the Germans Germans become better people? It uh, didn't, ultimately. So it's uh, arguing about the the redemptive power of religion or art and uh, uh, which is stronger, And, and it's it's very typical grade in in several senses um it the the, the minion which i'm learning teaching teaching this class currently is stories about Vilna just before the second world war and uh and what you get are are short stories with the same characters, and they've got the same problems. In every short story, it examines them from other angles, and there's no resolution. And uh, I think it's one of Grada's major themes. You know, just as here, Hersh Rosenberg and Chaim Vilner do not convince one the other of very much. They you they sure remain don't. they remain at at this uh, uh, crossroads or or. Uh, 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 Navaradkar standoff, Navaradkar standoff, uh, rather than a Mexican standoff, <laughs> uh, uh, and so you you get an examination of how they feel about it and a very deep uh, 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 look in, into their into their views. But when they part ways at the end of the story, nothing much has been. Resolved. The characters remain the same. It's the sort of question about the, the 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 unchanging nature of characters, and it it's funny because the Musa movement is about hardening the character. What movement?
0: The
1: Orthodox movement.
0: The the, no movement. the, oh. the uh, ethical kind of thing, which uh, these Yeshivas the... were very big on.
1: Right. So so Hirsch. Uh, Hirsch, Hirsch, complainant, Hirsch Uh Hirsch <laughs> Resainer <laughs> uh, is uh, is is certainly proud of being stubborn. Right. And as a character, I mean, they would send
3: he's... the students out to 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 buy nails in a bakery. Uh, they'd send them on fools' errands just so that they'd learn that it doesn't matter what someone else thinks; that they have their ethical, their religious duty. Mm. And uh, and you know the 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 world be damned.
2: Right. One of the things I th- find really interesting in this story is the way Herschel Sainer's character is so tough. Um, he's he's just I mean he is hard as nails, right? I mean he's just this very unforgiving, tough character, and I found that ex- kind of extraordinarily compelling in a kind of way. Um, and you could see why he was a person who survived the camps, like he had this kind of emotional toughness, um, which which Chaim Vilner, who's, you know, much more emotionally wrapped up in his um, enlightenment, in what happened to him when he left, you know, yeshiva and when he learned about Western values, he's much more, he seems so much, somehow much more vulnerable. And that's kind of interesting because it's kind of backwards, um, from what we might we might expect, we might expect the more religious person to somehow be more sentimental or or softer, but that's not that's not the case here. Right. Or have a bigger well, crisis, those,
1: right, because of how bad things were, right? <sighs> but no, uh,
0: yeah, but that's true. no. I mean, and those guys, I mean, you know, people like Herschel Sainer were my teachers uh, <laughs> for many years. Lucky, and, oh yeah, and my father, She-guts. you know. To, yeah, to go back to uh, Grada's big novel, uh, The Yeshiva, is set in the Lomzha Yeshiva. My grandmother, Lomja's town in Poland, uh, my grandmother, my uh, my uh, father's mother, was from Lomzha. And he actually spent some time in the same Yeshiva. He was somewhat younger. He was a dozen years younger than Grada, so they couldn't have overlapped. But he wa- actually did spend some time in the yeshiva described, at least in the building described in uh, Grada's novel and said that that was, you know, which he had read and said that that was a pretty accurate picture of what it was like. Uh, My father is somebody who was not a Masarnic. He stayed religious and actually thought this stuff was a little bit uh, off, you know, uh, a little too weird for him. But, you know, there was that Large strain. It was very like they were tough. They were very matter of fact. They were very very worldly. Very few of these guys made livings as religious professionals. You know, most of them, after studying for a number of years, uh, went. You know, they got married and went into business Mm -hmm. or something. Uh, So they were more worldly than you know. You think of a in Christian terms, you think of monks and priests and stuff. Soft these guys hands. tend to be – yeah, these guys were storekeepers and workers, uh, and they had that kind of no-bullshit attitude <laughs> uh, towards just about everything. Interesting. Uh, so, you know, I mean, like the way Hirsch comes across in here – and it's it makes sense that the more sensitive ones are the ones that are going to be – they're going to leave
3: mm-hmm.
0: or they're uh. going to look elsewhere. Uh, because basically, you know, the whole thing with Musser is you develop a superego that is constantly telling you that you're not living up to what you're supposed to be doing. You know, there's something, I mean, Grada quotes it in here. He quotes it elsewhere in his writings, talking about these yeshivas, mm-hmm. saying that once you've been touched by this stuff, <laughs> uh, you're never the same again. You'll never be
3: happy.
2: I certainly had the sense reading this story that Chaim Vilner was not happy. And I, I have had the sense, although Grada's life isn't something I know a lot about, but it doesn't seem like he was ever happy either. So, um, although whether that's uh, attributable to Musser or having, you know, survived the Holocaust or having married a nut job, who knows. But, <laughs> um, but certainly he, I, I think the, my impression from this story is that there is no way to come out of this really yeah with sort of any kind of intact tact sense of uh joy in the world mm. uh, so, if,
1: so if so what are they what is the quarrel then if if is not uh, a happy person why would he be arguing at all with with Resaner? what's going on
2: here well i mean i think it's just the scab he can't stop picking at you know um
3: the, the the quarrel is from before the Holocaust, from before the war, right. as we see, because they first meet in uh, nineteen thirty what eight nineteen thirty seven, uh, uh, <laughs> in Bialystok, where he'd been in the yeshiva, and uh, he's he's coming for an evening of poetry and uh, uh, I guess or or to receive an honor, and he runs into this guy from uh, from his old yeshiva. And the guy criticizes him and says, uh, "You've gone the way of ego." And uh, uh, he he wants to answer him that uh, you know, you, will you run away from the world because uh, because you're afraid that you won't be able to uh, uh, overcome it's it? Stand it, yeah, yeah. And so uh, then then basically this discussion is is deepened by the intervening. Uh, Eleven years and uh, and and the uh, Holocaust that uh, they meet that they have a meet in between as well in Vilna as uh, 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 Raer is a refugee there uh, but uh, but then the bulk of the story takes place in forty eight after the war there in Paris and, and uh, and they the, run into this third guy, a student of Resaner's, uh, who uh, asks questions about the writer and about his life. And, you know, as to, as to whether he could be happy or not, certainly uh, uh, the, the survivor's guilt is there because the, the, they talk about how Rasenur, of everyone, uh, you know, the, the the young man's family and brothers and townsmen, did not move to save him when he was sent to uh, the... the, the sick portion of the camp, I guess, for extermination, but Herr Schroesener comes and saves him. And uh, so the young man asks Grata, asks Vilner, did you, you know, did you save your family? And then he replies, you know, well, did Herr Schroesener save his own family? He saved you, but if, uh, if a Gentile had saved you, would you have become a Christian?
2: This this is a really central part of the story that I think does get lost because the translation leaves that out. Wow! Um, you know that that entire passage, um, it and it includes this part where the student Joshua, the student, um, you know specifically, um, seems to be saying that, you know, it's. And actually, Hersh almost says this as well in a few places that it's Jews like Chaim Chaim Vilner who brought on the Holocaust by oh. not believing enough. And so, this kind of debate, I think, to us now seems like so unthinkable um, that you would actually blame a Holocaust survivor. Um, but this I, I was a live debate.
0: Oh, very. I mean, I look. I remember people talking. You know. Ex- Debates of exactly this type uh, when I was a kid, you know, held by, you know, amongst people who were, you know, not particularly literary or whatever, but I mean, exactly the same kinds of fights. This is what real people really, you know, this looks like it's sort of set up to be some kind of, you know, allegory is the wrong word here, but, you know, you've got these two representational figures standing for... Uh, it's like a Platonic dialogue of life, but I mean, I remember these conversations amongst people. You know, not all of whom had stop being Orthodox. I mean, and not all of whom. You know, none of whom, at least in any circles that I was aware of, uh, went on to become famous writers or anything else. I mean, some of them became famous used car salesmen. <laughs> but. Uh, you know, these these were the kinds of things people talked about for years and years. Yeah. Uh, you know, remember there was also the idea of being a Holocaust survivor as the this was an experience or an ordeal that had somehow ennobled you. That didn't come along until the mid seventies. Right. Right. Uh, there was no nobody thought that anybody was a better person or a more sensitive person. God, for having lived through that. In fact, the, I think the general consensus would have been the opposite.
2: You must have done something in order to survive. You're in some well, way you are stained that, because you must just, have done something.
0: There was that a little bit, but also just the idea of what you have to, you know, the way you had to live. Yeah. And remember, this the way you had to live started well before the actual Holocaust you know, as people were denied more and more of their civil rights. Right. Uh, you know, it coarsened people. It put people into competition. You know, the people at the bottom are all scrambling over each other for the one crumb that might have been there.
3: Yeah. Uh, I don't know if I... Go ahead. No, uh, I'm just I don't saying. know if I brought it up last week uh, when we were talking about, about things. that rings a bell, but uh, I know, for instance... That I heard discussions among uh, actors from uh, the, the the older generation, and one American-born Yiddish actor said something about uh You know, all the co- you know the Continentals showed up then, meaning uh, the, the the Europeans survivors. would either come mm. as, as refugees or as survivors, and uh, it was with this kind of warning tone, like uh, these were <laughs> these were bad, difficult people.
1: Mm. Yeah. Fighters,
3: uh, and uh, and there was no, all fighters,
0: low class. Okay. Dishonest. I, mean, I meant scrappy.
1: Uh, I guess scrappy is uh, not as not as uh, you're nice. You're trying
3: to put a put face on it, and, yeah. and uh, survivors, uh, and, make awesome. um, and uh, even among the Jewish community, like like Masha ben- the the, <laughs> the singer, uh, the opera singer, at one point said, you know, she got here. And she was referred to by Jews as a a refugee. Yeah, wow, <laughs> interesting. You know the refugees, You know what bad thing. Yeah.
0: Uh, yeah. No, there there was on the part of the Jewish community there was definite, uh, well, prejudice. Yeah, and condescension, mixed with embarrassment and fear. Uh, Partly, you know, not just because of the events of the Holocaust, but here, you know, you look at the state of Yiddish culture in 1939 in the U.S., and you look at it 12 or 15 years later after the war. You know, the only reason Yiddish culture held on over here was there was this sudden influx of basically forgotten people, the ones who had stayed in Europe. And there was very much this idea that, you know, anybody with a brain or with any get up and go, or who wasn't, uh, when you're talking about people coming from the Soviet Union, who wasn't a, a convinced communist, got out when they had the chance. That the people that stayed somehow uh, didn't bring it upon themselves so much, but, you know, didn't do anything to, to. Uh, Look out for themselves. I'm not saying this is correct. I, you know, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm describing yeah. what was. Uh, I'm,
1: I'm extremely tempted. I'm going to say it out loud, even though it's dangerous and maybe silly. But like the idea of um, uh, some a family that emigrated from Syria in the 90s uh, might may, might already have children in uh, medical school, as opposed to the family that just emigrated last
0: year. Uh, who, yeah, who might have and you know where nothing. they can't... Yeah, they can't speak the language, etc., etc. You know, the um, North American Jewish community was pretty much at a point where they could pass uh, by the time the war broke out. Uh, all of a sudden, after the war, you got all these people that totally could not pass. You know, again, and you see what happened. Everybody thinks, like, this is a story about two old men. Because, you know, who still spoke that language? Who's still worried about this crap? Mm up until the war was old people right right the people who had been too formed in their characters when they came over to acculturate completely but of course the uh, the, the rising generation the veterans of world war 2 let's say were a generation younger than this and at least you know in the states and in canada were pretty much you know at least on the surface uh, acculturated Then all of a sudden you get this reminder of everything you'd left behind and forgotten about. And coming back, I I translated a memoir a couple of years ago. Uh, This guy gets to New York after the war and he finds some relatives in Brooklyn. And they're like, "Okay, here's how the electricity works. Here's how you flush a toilet. Here's how you take a bus. And he's, you know, he was like from some reasonable-sized town, and he's at first he can't figure it out, and then he realizes, of course, when they came over, you know, and these were relatives he'd never met. These people <laughs> came over in the first decade of the 20th century. Nobody'd seen those things in in that part of Europe, oh, so they so- just assumed he was coming from the same primitive you know backwater that they had come from
1: that's funny and
0: you know sure the the quality of life in in bucharest at the time was probably you know in in 1939 or the early 40s was probably lower than it was in new york city but you know they had things like electricity uh you know he'd been to a movie he knew how to use a telephone <laughs> Uh, and much of the book is like this guy's making fun of his asshole relatives for trying to show him how to use a phone when he's just made three phone calls in front of them. Uh, what's the uh,
1: what's what's this memoir you translated? What's it called?
3: It wasn't published, so it was a family thing for some. Yeah, it was a family, family thing.
1: How nice. <laughs>
3: that's one of that's nice one of this. the ways you make a living in Yiddish these days. Yes, yeah. <laughs> or no, or don't make a living. Yeah, don't make a living, don't make a living, go ahead. Uh, uh, I think there's also an aspect, you know, uh, I think uh, Faith or, 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 uh, or uh, Wex brought up at some point the, the idea that it also feels a little bit like uh, uh, Chaim Vilner or Chaim Grade's own uh, argument with himself. Yeah. uh, Isn't there a
2: place where Chaim Vilner says When I argue with you To Hirsh Hussainer When I argue with you I could be talking to myself
1: Isn't there a place where he says Well "Ah." they both say it to each other They say forgive me But I'm about to tell you What I've been telling to you In my head for years And now here you are So just let me talk Like they both say that to one another Like I've been having this conversation with you When you weren't here So I'm really glad we ran into each other Because here it goes Forgive me Here it goes and then they like tell each other what they've been thinking for the last couple of years about the about the other guy.
2: So
3: it is in the, it is all in the conversation. So, well, uh, uh, I think you know just talking about uh, the attitude towards uh, survivors and uh, refugees uh, at that point that we get a little glimpse of uh, you know that survivor guilt there in the in the in the passage where. Uh, where Rasenar's uh, student asks him, did you save your family? Of course, Grada was unable to save his mother and yeah. his wife at the time. And uh, uh, Chaim Filner, uh, we understand, also lost uh, uh, his family in this. So, so, th- so uh,
1: I can't believe that got cut. There's no story without that. <laughs> no wonder I was <laughs> bored. I, I don't well, mind admitting that I didn't Gino. like this story, and now I know why. They're, he cut the plot. They cut the plot out when they translated well, it into English.
0: Well, part of the problem with translating it into English with the student, or I guess the perceived problem, was the student is a real little asshole. Sure, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he's yeah. young. Although he's, yeah. they, he's a they mentioned nothing. how old he is. He's in his twenties by that point. He's in his early twenties, I think they say. But, you know, he's a, you know, he's young and he knows everything, and he's extremely impolite. I mean, if nothing else, uh, having, you know, again, having attended a yeshiva that is a daughter house to many of these muser yeshivas, I can tell you, you talk to any grown-up, the way that kid talked to Chaim Vilner, you would have got a clop in the head. Uh, huh. It wouldn't have mattered yeah. if the guy was an atheist. It's you don't talk to other people that way, ever. Yeah,
1: it's very interesting. Uh-huh.
0: And and the, the kid is basically, well, you know, you're consigned to hellfire, so shit on you, buddy. Uh, yeah. And, uh, Hirsch goes off on him.
1: Huh. Yeah. You
0: know, Hirsch Her- Rosaner says, no, this is not how you treat a person, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah.
2: Even though he's, he's happy that his student has sort of absorbed the basic lessons um, of, you know, around belief, but he is, he is somewhat, uh, he he is, he's sort of humiliated by the fact that his student, you know, can't be polite. And, um, and there's this sort of interesting, this, this sort of interesting moment where it's like, we see these sort of boundaries pushing up against each other. um, And maybe... Um, maybe in the post-war world, there isn't going to be a place for Hirsch, even in the yeshiva world anymore. Hmm. Uh, which, which I thought was interesting. Um, the, there's just there's just a, this, this slight tension between different ideas of ways that you're Orthodox coming out there.
1: So Hirsch Resiner is by no means fanatical, but perhaps his student t- is trending in that direction.
2: Maybe. And I mean, I think Grada, it was very, very concerned about the intransigence of the Orthodox towards non-Orthodox Jews and also towards non-Jews. And that's why I'm not sure if it's actually, I don't know if this is in the translation or not, the stories of all the people who turned into, who who saved Jews, the different kinds of people who saved Jews, an atheist, a very devout Christian, different kinds of people who, who, saved, think, who became, uh, yeah. was, was that in the translation, Eric?
1: Oh, I do not recall. Oh.
2: So, yeah, so it might not have come through. And so I think yeah. there's this 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 way in which Grotta is talking about how do we understand people who did truly noble things who don't fit into this conception of, you know, who is a good person. Um, you know, it sort of seems as if he's saying the Orthodox don't have any way of understanding a good Gentile.
0: Yeah, I mean, that, that's, that's certainly there. You know, I think the, the larger, you know, part of the reason I think that this is, you know, Grada talking to himself, as it were, is, you know, he's dealing with, you know, the big topic of, especially post-World War II, Yiddish literature, for sure, and to some degree, Jewish literature in non-Jewish languages, which is like, what is the point to this? What is its relationship to tradition? To religious tradition, how far can it go when it doesn't rest on on that? I mean, reading this in Yiddish, and you know, I, I can ask uh, both Faith and Eric. I mean, did you guys have trouble with the language?
2: Oh my God! <laughs> I only had to look up about a million words. I mean, geez.
3: and and there's a number of them that you wouldn't find, at yes, least there's in a lot, in yeah. Naborsky.
2: Oh no! You have to look it up in Hebrew. I mean, yeah, or in it's a huh. uh, yeah. No, I mean,
3: there's a side note. I think is is interesting. Uh, if you use uh, the, these Loshen dictionaries, Loshen to English uh, to to Yiddish, rather than a Hebrew dictionary, you'll find. Uh, Almost everything that's mentioned in Bashevis, and very often, you know, in the O.E.D. style, they'll give a citation, and it'll be it so happens uh, from, from the passage that you're looking the word up from in Bashevis. That but has there's, a to me. In Grata, mm. there's a lot of words in There's a lot of words in Grada that if you look them up, you're not going to find in those books for some reason. He's uh, still a little bit on a side, I think.
0: Well, uh, also, a lot of what he's doing, it's not just individual words. He'll... Yeah. Tags. He'll quote, yeah, tags and, and stuff uh, from the Talmud or from rabbinic literature mm-hmm. that well, were you know not. Them, and I mean, what's interesting here is, yeah, this is, uh, you know, if you look at the Yiddish style, this is relatively high-flown. But, uh, you know, the people who read the Yiddish Kempfer. For instance, which was a left wing
3: magazine.
0: Was it Anarchist?
3: Um, it was the Arbiter, Zion, uh, Ar- Arbiter oh. Zionist, I believe. Labor yeah. Zionist, okay. Yeah.
0: So, labor Zionists who tended, you know, the older ones probably had some kind of relatively, that, that had gone to school long enough, probably had a relatively thorough traditional education. But uh the younger ones, and by younger, I mean people born say you know from about the time of World War one and up probably didn't, and yet they would have been expected to understand all of this
2: right you well, know well, what are the problems the
0: degree is- to which this stuff suffuses i mean one of you know one of the interesting things about a story like this is, yeah, it can be translated and it can be well translated. But it would have made no sense to write it in any language other than Yiddish. yeah,
1: right. Can we talk a little it bit about all... some of those uh, like or a a phrase or or maybe a couple words in particular
0: what? it's, it's not any it? particular word. it's the idea of being familiar with this vast kind of uh, warehouse of these phrases and tags that. Depending on what kind of education a person had, they might have known where they came sure. from. They might not have known where. I'm they just
1: came I'm from. just trying to egg you on to actually uh, read a passage in Yiddish and then tell me what it says.
2: Well, okay, I'm I'm pulling up my notes for you, Eric. Um, let me just get them up here. Um, oh, that's why this is why Eric didn't know that Reshainer was coming came from a town. They didn't put that in the English. They don't in, yeshiva, the in the yeshiva, we called each other by the c- city you came from. This is my favorite
1: so, yeah, new sorry. theme of the podcast: <laughs> is did Eric screw up and not read as carefully as he should have, or is it not his fault because the translations are terrible? <laughs> tra- it's not and in the translation. It's fifty-fifty, folks. It's fifty-fifty.
2: <laughs> and w- uh, um, okay. So what are some word? Okay, so uh, okay, so right near the beginning. It leaves okay. out a sentence that 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 refers to
3: the Chayvis Halvovis. The, the duties of which the is heart. a presumably, uh, I think it's a safer or a uh, it's some kind of text, it's an, right? It's an ethical book. It's probably
0: the best known of those, uh, uh, by Bachya Ibn Pakuda. Uh, so it's, an example for you. It's a moral, you know, it's how to be a good person, which is mostly remember you're a worm. And God is like fantastic, and you suck. And oh, you did that. You think you're something? You suck. Uh, uh, you know. You notice there's a lot of citations from the Book of Job
3: hmm.
0: scattered about, uh, like over the course of the story. Uh, in the uh, in the Yiddish, they're not translated. Uh, so, I mean, you said you want an example. Uh, this is in the Yiddish on page 36 on the towards the bottom of the first column. Uh, This is, uh, yeah, this is Hersh talking to Chaim. He's saying, and your claim that a person can't change, can't be different from what he is, is a sheker muchlat, it's an absolute lie. From my flesh, I will see God, right? And then he goes on to say, which is not translated. It's there in Hebrew, and then it just goes on, and says, But, uh, you know, uh, Hersh Resiner will uh, tell you very strongly that a person can change, that a person can become different. Uh, you know, stuff like this just tossed in, in the original. Yeah.
2: Uh,
0: you know where and it's
2: unrelenting it is unrelenting i'm just going to warn yiddish students out there give mm. yourself plenty of time with this work it isn't that long but it is incredibly dense and you just you yeah, like if you don't
0: if you don't have a yeshiva education like this stuff has actually enjoyed a second life in the past 20 or so years amongst you know off the derech off the straight and narrow path people uh, who've grown up in ultra orthodox environments, where you know Yiddish is still spoken, and of course do have the proper education, and can sit consider- and you know read through this stuff. And firstly, it's like the spelling is funny uh, if you're coming from uh-huh. from there, but otherwise the language is exactly what they're used to, mm. uh, and you know they'll get all the references. Yeah. Uh, And I think that even goes so far as as women, you know, would would get it as well. You know, this is just, this was, you know, the common coin of the way people spoke. It doesn't mean they talk this way all the time.
2: The problem is, I remember in in Yiddish class, Naborski saying um, at one time uh, to our class that, you know, the problem with not knowing Hebrew, if you're a Yiddish speaker, um, if you're a Yiddish learner, is that in principle, any Hebrew word can be a Yiddish word. Mm-hmm. So that means you have to actually learn two languages yeah. in order to just learn Yiddish. So it's a huge problem for Yiddish learners if you're not already, not just fluent in the Hebrew language, but fluent in the way the language is deployed in these Orthodox circles, which comes out an awful lot in Yiddish literature. Mm. So, again, yes. Yeah, as, so as in answer we to your question, Lex... Difficult language, yes. Difficult language yeah. for someone like me. Hmm.
0: Yeah. How uh, is, is this? Because here, you know, no. what you're looking at here, you know, well, the reason they can embrace each other at the end uh, is that for all their differences, it's kind of a unified culture. Right. Hmm. There's a level on which, you know, like I said, it wouldn't have made sense to write this story in a different language. Right. In Hebrew, it would just be a polemic right. uh, that never gets anywhere. Uh, I think that's, you know, it's years since I've read the English translation, but it's from what I remember and from what people have been saying, especially Eric. It sounds like it comes across to a degree that way in English as well.
1: Yeah, just 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 streams of. Uh... One guy talking for a page and then another guy talking for a couple pages.
2: You know, I'm going to say. Point counterpoint. E- yeah, I'm going to say even in Yiddish, this isn't the kind of work you're going to really enjoy if you're a big fan of car chases. <laughs> you know, it doesn't, it doesn't yeah. change into a different story in Yiddish. I mean, it is still a story yeah, that's about t- philosophy. Take me back to God so. of Vengeance
1: where they throw people down the stairs.
2: There's, you know, whorehouses and everything. Yeah, if that's what you want, God of Vengeance is great. So um, it is still a story oh, that is basically has no plot. Um, it is, you know, it is about the life, the interior life yeah. of survivors and about the sort of, um, I feel like it's almost the way that philosophy is crushing them, you know, mm. um, that they're, yeah, just attempting to make sense of the world is almost is almost an unbearable weight for them. So I think well, it's extraordinarily meaningful story, but no, it's not. Uh, it's not a, not a lot of
0: events.
2: Well, you know, it's the it's like there's
0: this scene in Paris with with him and uh, and Hirsch, where you know they're looking at the statues outside of the church.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Right, and the hotel de Ville. Yeah, the hotel. De Ville, that's right. Uh, so the the city hall. So. Chaim, uh, you know, Chaim is looking at, oh, look at these beautiful statues and blah, 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 blah. And Heresh is, oh, what's with the Avoid Azor? You know, what, you're staring at the idols? Uh, (laughs) You know, how can anybody see anything worthwhile in this? Right. Uh, And again, you know, what that comes back to, though, is Chaim can look at it and he can appreciate it, but he can't be part of it. Right. So what does he need it for? You know, you come back to Hirsch's question, even if you're Chaim. Right. uh, And that, you know, the problem is you can have Chaim, you can have one generation of Chaims without Hirsch's. You know, people who still know the stuff. But Hirsch can go on forever. Right. You know, and it's it's one of the things, what is, and I think that's one of the things the story's about, is what is secular Yiddish culture? Mm-hmm. And is such a thing even possible? And how secular can it get? Hmm. You know, how far away can you move from from this stuff? You know, I mean, it's interesting. One of, one of Grada's novels, which is uh, one of his shorter novels called The Aguna, uh, which has been fairly well translated into english uh it's a whole novel that really moves along very very well and it turns on what to anybody to anybody not from a traditional background is a minute point of religious law Uh, and that's what the whole book is about and he manages to make an entire human drama and it's a you know it's a very well done novel. Which United. fantastic! Which novels. translation
1: is the one you like? As far as we're making recommendations, uh,
0: I think, I think that was Kurt stuff. There's only Leviant, one. yeah. I think it's Kurt Leviant. Did it? Yeah, yeah. Uh,
2: Leviant.
1: Yeah, see, he certainly that's so, did. That's the uh, novel Yeshiva. He certainly to. did the oh, Okay, so um, you, you were talking about a different novel just now. What was the novel that you were just saying? It's
0: called yeah the Aguna A G U N A H and Aguna the, is the a chained woman. woman. Yeah, whose husband has disappeared. Either he's thought to be, you know, he might have gone off to war and never come back. He might have just vanished. The grass wife, but a woman,
1: again. Yeah, a
0: grass widow, yeah.
1: Didn't a
0: woman long. can't divorce a man in Jewish law. So unless you have two witnesses who can affirm that the guy is dead, the woman can't remarry. Right. This is still, this is a major problem in Israel. Uh and, of course, after every major war in Europe, this was a major problem in the Jewish communities. Hmm. It was a big problem after World War One. It was a big problem after World War II. Uh, the book is set in Vilna between the wars. Uh, and it's a woman in this position. And it's like everybody knows that the guy's not coming back. But you don't have the proper legal proofs of it which means she has to spend the rest of her life alone so uh activist rabbi intervenes uh and it just you know it's you know of course it's a jewish story it turns into a disaster for everybody involved uh but it's not at all slow moving no you you don't need to know anything about any of this stuff to get like totally wrapped up in it and, you know, one of the things is, you know, one of the things that I guess a secular Yiddish culture can do is show you how this really is, you know, like they say in Jewish, you know, it's it's uh, practically life and death matters uh, to to many people, this sort of stuff.
2: Yeah.
0: And that it, you know, you can turn it into art, you can make uh, fiction or poetry out of it without necessarily betraying
1: it. Hmm. I, I I need to ask if, in your opinion, uh, this Yiddish story needs a better translation, or is it fine for people, English readers like me, to read this existing version and then, you know, read essays written by people like you just to fill in the <laughs> the stuff I'm not getting?
2: I think it would be very worthwhile to have a more complete translation. I think it unlikely to happen soon because of the way the um, the estate isn't still in kind of in turmoil. Oh. <laughs> um, yeah, I may be underest—I may be even downplaying how bad it is. Yeah. But um,
0: <laughs> but there's you
2: know there's a All lot the of legal uh, wrangling around this, and um,
0: there's but yeah there's stuff missing, and I mean even from. Uh, the last time I t- taught the translation, which has got to be twenty-five years ago, I remember there were some small mistakes in the Yiddish. Uh, in, the, in the Yiddish. Uh, well, in the translation. In from, the English. You know, in the English, I mean, yeah. Like yeah. the translator. Was it Milton Hindus? I can't remember who translated yeah. it. Himmelfarb? Oh, yeah, I got oh, it. Himmelfarb, that's right. Yeah. Milton. I think uh, that's who it is. I get all the I get all my Milton's mixed up. Uh but uh
2: I mean, in general, They're, I think it's not a bad translation in terms of it reading quite fluently.
0: Yeah.
2: Um, you know, stylistically, I think it's fine, but it's just incomplete, you know? It throws yeah. a
0: bridge in, into the middle of Vilna where there shouldn't be one. Yeah, why? Is <laughs> <it>? Because <laughs> yeah. he mistranslated Brook. Oh, yeah. Brook.
3: The, the translates pavement.
2: Brook a, okay.
3: Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I'm, I'm curious. Uh, Wex, you might have a... a Bit different opinion on it than I do, and, and Faith, you seem to be somewhere uh, in the middle. I have to say, you know, working on them uh, Minion on 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 the other on those short stories, and comparing to this, this one does to a degree slip into polemic for me, and uh, I I feel like a like it's less stylistically satisfying to me. Than some yes. of his other work. Hmm. I mean, well, I, think I, I would historically agree. Historically and culturally, it's quite an interesting piece. But um, you know, as far as like uh, tour de force writing, no, not this one. Uh,
0: no, no I, I would agree with you completely. I mean, this is this is a great story. If you you know. If you like to write papers about stories, <laughs> this is a great story.
1: Well, I, uh, it's got
0: so much. Stuff because in it's it. entirely expository. Well,
1: I'm really struck though yeah. because one of the reasons that this is happening is because of um, I'm a I'm a very non-religious uh, Jew who is uh, still tr- trying to figure out why I am. You're Jewish. still
3: trying to do tshuva. Yeah.
1: And so, <laughs> and so the the idea this of is, this that's is what a, the this story is a great about. story for yeah. stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, um, uh, that's interesting. No, I mean
0: like when Grata starts to write fancy, I mean, firstly, it's enough to drive you crazy because he turns on the nature writing. What did you uh, just? Yeah.
1: What word? Fancy. Yeah. Fancy. <laughs> fancy. 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 Oh. <laughs> you the fancy <laughs> <heart>. Right. <laughs> of
0: course you know the fancy stuff he likes to show you how many plants he can name descriptions Uh, of
3: nature uh normally i hate that stuff but he does really well
0: he does do it really well but uh I used to ask my father, like, you know, what's this? Is this is a plant? You know, thank you. Some kind <laughs> a of plant. Some kind of tree. Some kind of tree. You know, so I, that the part I worked tree. out already. All three. That's. Um, it. I
1: remember like 20 years ago reading 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, and there's like seven straight pages of just lists of fish. Yeah. Just
0: every fish well, in the like, ocean that he knows. Some knew. of it, it's like. I don't know, they they used to make us read Balzac in French. So the average Balzac novel will open with a 10-page description of some piece of machinery that has been obsolete since eighteen (laughs) fifty-three. Right. And it's like, you got to look up the words for all the parts, and even after that, you still have no idea what the whole was supposed to look like because you've never seen one. Right. Uh, And it was before there was an internet, so you couldn't look.
3: Uh, You know, I have to say
2: sorry, I have to say, even though I agree with you that this story is um, didactic and overly long and re- repetitive, like it, it goes over the same ground multiple times, mm-hmm. but I find it incredibly moving. Like there's something about it that I find every time, and this is probably the fourth time I've read it, probably the fourth and fifth, if you can't count 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 rereading both languages, you know, every time It gets me like there's a way in which I just am really somehow I I feel as if I just get something about survivorship and about um, the, you know, the sort of existential crisis um, of people who actually, you know, lived through that that moment that very few other things actually give me. Uh, So I am quite attached to it, even though I know it's not, um, you know, not necessarily literarily, you know, right at the top.
1: Yeah, I'm going to actually uh, go at it uh, for a second time now that I've had the opportunity to, to to soak in all of these reasons why it matters. Because it was not—those weren't readily apparent, right, when I was just uh, making my way through this translation. So it's, I'm glad we had this talk. My thanks to Shane Baker, Faith Jones, and Michael Wex for contributing to this episode and to all the episodes of the program and the project And thank you for listening to this entire episode about my quarrel with Hersh Fusainer. If you have any thoughts or reactions or questions about this story or anything else we've ever talked about or might talk about in the future, please feel free to send us an email, yiddishbookclub at gmail.com. Or find us on Facebook, which is online at facebook.com slash yiddish book club or twitter.com slash yiddish book club we got them all uh feel free to reach out to us that's why we did those social media things not because we love facebook or twitter but because we love hearing from you the people that uh enjoy this show or hate it still love to hear from you subscribe to the show on the podcast app Or podcaster of your choice. Uh rate and review us so that other people can find out about the work. Uh coming up on the next episode of Yiddish Book Club, coming soon, as soon as I finish editing it, uh, we're talking about Gluckle of Hamlin, which is the first book ever published by written by a Jewish woman. Really, the first ever. And uh, if I'm wrong about that, because to be honest, on this podcast, I'm your unreliable narrator. Uh, the experts, my friends, Shane Baker, Faith Jones, and Michael Wex, will correct me. They know their stuff. When I get it wrong, they get it right. But I'm pretty sure that this book, Gluckle of Hamelin, uh, if it's not the first book authored by a Jewish woman ever published, it's certainly one of the earliest. And it's really, really an incredible work of literature. The memoirs, the true story uh, from her own pen of a woman who was mother to... 14 children in her lifetime and uh, sat down to write a book uh, directed to them speaking to them uh, shortly after the death of her first husband the the father of all 14 children and uh, it starts I'm just gonna start I'm just gonna say as you listen to the end of this podcast the book starts off nearly impenetrably hard to read uh, so that anybody in their right mind would quit within the first five pages and yet if you get past those pages wow does it get good uh she she drops a bunch of the pretense the literary weird voice that she's using at the beginning of the story and then she just like is speaking directly from her heart to her children telling both her life story as well as a whole bunch of uh gossip, and family history to try to keep them out of trouble, uh, which was a remarkably human and, dare I say, super Jewish tale, at least to me. Reminded me weirdly of my grandma because I can't help myself. Uh, So that's coming up next on the Yiddish Book Club podcast. And if you're listening to this sometime in the future then it's probably already available and you can check it out instead of listening to me talk about it you can listen to to the experts uh, and what they have to say again, all of it anything you need uh, regarding this project yiddishbookclub.com
0: if you like to write papers about stories (laughs) this is a great story